You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Good evening. Welcome to Heartbeat, everyone. I'm your host, Cindy Bright. Thank you for joining this evening. Courageous Together, you're going to hear a conversation about what will it take? What kind of courage will it take for every one of us to move society forward? In the words of Dr. Karen Johnson, to rebuild society so that all of us can prosper. Every week we're on air talking about many of the issues that are impacting, particularly Black women. There's a lot happening in our society today that we need to discuss and keep in the forefront every week. Today in the Seattle Times, did you catch the article that came out about the uh, growing or increased deepening, widening racial wealth gap here in the Seattle area? That's no surprise to any of us. Uh, The article attributes it to uh, the fact that we have a lot of, this is a technology hub here in Seattle. And so uh, it actually very specifically says that the white men and Asian men are profiting, prospering. And guess who's on the very back end of all of this? Black women. These are the things we've been clamoring about, talking about. DEI efforts have dried up. So here we are. What I want to do is I want to show this clip before I introduce in the two queens that are here with me this evening to have this discussion, because there's a lot to unpack when we look at this clip. So let me show this really quick and then we'll talk about it. Okay, here we go. Let me welcome in uh, two of the regular Queens commentators who are here to join me in this discussion this evening. Let's welcome in Dr. Karen Johnson and Dr. Stephanie Coverson joining me this evening. Good evening, Queens. Thank you for joining this conversation this evening. How are you both this evening first? (laughs) You good? Okay. Yes. Activated after watching that clip, but otherwise okay. (laughs) 
Uh, do you know why I showed that clip? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, whether it's the tennis court, uh, the legal court, the boardroom, um, you know, the, the rules are uh, many times selectively applied um, when we're involved. And not only that, we have to continue to say our piece. You know, that was a wonderful clip because it's going to help us to unpack what the bystanders, the onlookers get to do. It gets to validate how we must continue to say what needs to be said, especially when we're right. I mean, those were the rules. And the rules. Old post is moved on our behalf. We must still stick to the rules and say our <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. What I didn't show was the after uh, interview that happened with her opponent. And did you by chance see that? So her opponent um, was a white woman in that in that that was that was two weeks ago, that particular um, game. But the her opponent came on to national media and was crying and offended that she was accused of. Um, pausing the game or slowing the game down and was just appalled at, as to why that would be the case. Now, there's several reasons why I wanted to show that clip because it is a, it's a reflection of our lives on the daily, which is, did you catch the look of the, I don't know, are they called referees in tennis? Ref. Yeah. Yeah. Referees and, um, did you catch the look on her face when she had her hands down? Like it was just this kind of patronizing look like I'm listening to you, but it took the crowd. It took the crowd to get loud and, and back uh, Coco up because Coco was right in order to progress that forward. And I think this, it's an important um, analogy or uh, example of one example in the day in the life of what it means to be black women in this time and using our voices and attempting to get solutions to issues and they're not being heard. <laughs> and so I do think it's an important time now in our nation that people are beginning to perk up a little bit. I mean, you heard the crowd like rally behind her. And so, you know, I I'm using this platform to try to say, what more do we need to do to activate the other people around us to help us? When I mentioned that study about the Seattle Times and it's in the paper today, I mean, this is something we've been saying for years. I mean, I wrote a book on it. I mean, this is not news to any of us that the wage uh, gap is so far and, and it literally cannot be fixed outside of reparations. I don't care what anyone says. It's so deep and wide that we can't solve it through menial action. Um, so that was kind of my intent behind uh, that was to share some of that and for our audience to be able to see you know, what's going on here. Let's, let's read the bystander engagement is going to be critical to elevating our voices as black women, trying to help the community to see that we are being targeted. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's an important, um, it's an important uh, piece to all of this. And we need to continue to have this conversation around uh, 
elevating black women's voices. Absolutely. Absolutely. I made a TikTok about uh, the press conference in particular when this came out and the tears and they accused me of cheating. And like I was, you know, doing these horrible things and horrible person. And ma'am, you were cheating. (laughs) And so what was not shown in that clip is that she's sitting down resting. You're not supposed to be sitting down during the match. And so Coco is standing up eating and she's like, you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to be sitting down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't just the, uh, her sort of taking her sweet time to get ready for Coco serve. She was breaking all of the rules. And what's really interesting, and I, I don't think that I've seen enough media coverage of it is that when the tears didn't work, um, there was a clip later on where you saw, uh, I think her name is Laura, coming out of um, under the, the tunnel. And so there is somebody standing looking at her and Laura says something. And then you see this other woman like, <gasps> right. So when the tears didn't work to deflect and center Laura as the victim, then she went into rage. And we still don't like, I suspect I, you know, could guess what she might have said. Um, But we still don't know, you know, in fact, it hasn't been confirmed what she said when she went into a rage. Mm -hmm. This is our world. This is in the grocery store. This is in the post office. This is in the workplace, predominantly in the workplace, not believed, have to go up against people who have been historically believed. And now we're at a place where one of our viewers just made the comment where the bystanders now need to have a lot more courage. Now, I was reflecting on that this afternoon about many of my white women colleagues and, you know, people I have partnered with to do business with. And it's been a pretty common story that they are frustrated within one to two tries of being told no, or they're frustrated within when they get pushback about fees or whatever it is. And I think I said to you, Dr. Coverson, I said, I live in pushback. Like this is our lives that we live in that all the time. And the discomfort that others feel who don't live in this life to salt, you know, we we are 400 days away, roughly 400 days away from a potentially, what's a new election coming. And it's critical to all of our lives. And we don't have 400 days to wait for someone to wake up and say, we need the people on the sidelines to step up and help. And what, and, and what does that look like? What, what do we want our other colleagues, our, our white colleagues, our brown colleagues? Well, like, what do we need from them to make changes in this like quickly? What, what are your thoughts about that? I saw that clip before I'm in the great state of New York and I'm exhausted to be honest after cleaning dad's house, the journey continues. But the day I found his black power fist, I almost brought it because I was thinking today about a book 
by Ruby Hamad. She's a journalist, author, and academic. And she wrote an article in The Guardian entitled, How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Silence Women of Color. It became a global flashpoint for discussion of white feminism and racism. She splits her time between Sydney and Australia and New York, and she is a brown woman. I would highly encourage as a starting point for everyone to read the book entitled White Tears, Brown Scars. And see, it's funny that we're talking about you, you're opening with tears because I wasn't even going to talk about that part of it tonight. However, I would like to, as is my custom, just take a few minutes to just lay some context for us to continue. And she wrote, it is critical to understand what we are talking about when we talk about white tears. The kind of distress we are analyzing may well feel genuine, but it is neither legitimate nor innocent, which is what Dr. Coverson was talking about from the other tennis player. He goes on to write, rather than denoting weakness, it signals power. The white fragility is triggered by discomfort and anxiety. It is born of superiority and entitlement. Mm -hmm. White fragility is not weakness. It is powerful means of white racial control and the protection of white advantage. And I, I think it's very important for us to, to, to realize that this is a thing. And it goes back to the making of a slave uh, when uh, Africans were brought here and enslaved and the norms of where and how to treat black people in general, black women in particular, were established. Because if you think about it, white women can both be oppressed and oppressor. Black women don't have that opportunity because black women are women and black and rules and implicit biases have been established through social norms and how we are to be seen, treated, and or not heard. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think as we become aware of what's going on, because many people, when I was doing this work, one of the difficulties in talking, having this courageous conversation is many feel as though they will be labeled a racist mm -hmm. if they engage in the conversation. Think back to Charlottesville, when that Fox News reporter uh, was there talking about uh, uh, Trump and both there are good people on both sides. Mm -hmm. And there was a black woman who had to be the one to point out uh, the fallacy of that argument. The Fox News reporter started crying and the black woman didn't allow the tears to win the day. Because mm -hmm. even though the, the, the news reporter uh, said, oh, well, this is a difficult conversation to have, uh, Melissa Francis was her name. Uh, the black woman says, no, but we, we can have this conversation and we will. Like, absolutely. This is not new. And I struggle a little bit now with the term white fragility because it is not weakness. Mm -hmm. It is rage right. from mm -hmm. the inability mm -hmm. um, to get what one feels is owed to them, right? And so it is also um, those tears are very intentional to uh, garner backup. So think about City Bike Karen, 
um, mm-hmm. when she tried to steal that bicycle from um, that black teenager. Mm-hmm. And then when that didn't work, she started crying and a white man comes up and is like, just give her the bike, you know, immediately sort of jumps in and assumes that uh, city bike Karen was in the right. And so these tears are not necessarily what well, I would argue that they are not from hurt feelings, um, but rather a bruised ego or vanity um, mm-hmm. because uh, one is not getting what they feel is their just dessert, mm-hmm. right, in that situation. Mm-hmm. And those tears cause people to unjustly go to jail, to be harmed, to be killed to lose jobs. It is extremely problematic. And uh, even though Dr. J is talking about a book that was written, you know, a while ago, these books are still going out, going out. So um, the white women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. Same concept just dropped Right. Because the wisdom that is being imparted by black and brown women, um, you know, we're presumed to be incompetent. Right. We are not subject matter experts in our own oppression and can't cannot provide people the tools on how to do better. Mm -hmm. You know, you said a lot there, Dr. Carson, that I was could respond to. However, I'm going to respond to. This from a mirror. You know, I'm sitting in the bathroom of the hotel. I'm not at home. And I can see myself in the mirror. And it is reflecting back to me the, the blue glasses that I'm wearing and the pearls that are somewhat out of order. And, and my lovely new blouse I bought for you today, uh, Miss Cindy. <laughs> and when we talk about the books that are out, the awareness, it's like pulling up a mirror. Especially mm-hmm. we are describing how behaviors are impacting us. And just because people see the spinach in their teeth, well, don't be bad at me because I'm holding up the mirror. I didn't put the spinach in your teeth. Go, go get a dental floss thing and, 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 and floss it out of your teeth yourself. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to continue to hold up the mirror. I mean, that's a pow- that is exact. That is the power in this because the ability to see oneself is in direct proportion to how society can and will change, and the the I personally know how hard it is to look in the mirror. And I have shared an example on some of my speaking engagements where I talk to people about when I, uh, a few years ago when I battled breast cancer and the moment that I had to shave my head and the chemo knocked off all my eyelashes and I was in horrific pain from the chemo. And I remember standing in my bathroom And I looked in the mirror and I remember saying, do I even recognize her? And and what is it she needs to do and be better? 
right? Because you know that when you come on the other side of it, you can't go back to the way it it was. Anybody who's been through severe um, illnesses like that understand the gravity of what I just said. And so I was in, I was almost forced to pivot in my life a little bit and to be better about some things and to accelerate in some other areas of my life that I was leaving, you know, on the sidelines, Mm -hmm. uh, haven't achieved some things I want to yet, but it's hard work to look at yourself and acknowledge the icky stuff that's inside of all of us. Like we've all been in this society trying to survive. So it's not a statement of judgment that you have it. It's a statement of, are you willing to step into this and do the work that is necessary, which means for those of women who uh, Dr. Coverson was referring to, well, all of us are referring to, that you have to be better. Like you have to show up like this. I'm going to, I'm going to push back twice. And if, and if I still can't get paid from this, then I, I just can't work with you anymore, Cindy, or, or, or is this really worth this anymore? And I'm like, you have to decide, you have to decide those things because this fight for us is 24 seven. And here we are heading. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why I am feeling a little more anxious about this whole issue of courageous together is because we're headed there is so much at stake right now. Our lives are dependent on courage right now. Our lives are dependent on this dominant culture of women who sit in privilege and who believe that their lives are going to be unaffected in the next 400 days. It won't be. They will be just as impacted as us. And I I think that that is one of the things that I've been sitting with. Um, I'm in the the process of pulling together uh, my problem of practice. And what I have been sitting with, to your point, um, around uh, these collaborative uh, attempts um, to have conversations about DEI and anti-racism work, and when that pushback happens once or twice, throwing my hand at, oh, and I can't do this, so I'm going to go kind of off on my own, or I'm going to collaborate with other people. It also, I'm curious, right, about given the overrepresentation of white identifying folks in these DEI positions and the lack of movement Um, I'm wondering about these folks internally to organizations throwing their hands up because of the pushback or the fear of losing one's job for, you know, standing, you know, 10 toes down, uh, demanding to see something different. Um, And so it is really, I think, about this issue of uh, we need allies and accomplices to show up as if their life depends on it, too. Because it does. It does. It does. And while it's not just as much in their face, 
right? As um, I talk about Black women being called the canary in the coal mine, right? So if you don't listen to the canary, heed the warning of the canary, those toxic fumes are coming for you too. Although you might not see it in the moment. Well, if we're going to be courageous, let's just go there. Before I left Washington State, I made the mistake of having the news on and was watching it. But what caught my attention was that there are some states now who have decided that they can go ahead and uh, legalize abortion or bring penalties of people who want to have abortions outside of their state in their state. And if anybody comes into their state or from another state, they want to go ahead and 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 I don't know, movies toward them. And it reminded me of the Fugitive Slave Act. Do you all remember that? If there was a free a person who was free, now they were already free, but legally a black person who was free and traveled to another state that was a slave state, they were enslaved. Or traveled to a free slave. The Fugitive Slave Act said, oh no, they need to be enslaved. And I'm just wondering if anybody sees the similarity Mm -hmm. in that and determining outside of your own state the livelihood of others. I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if it's going to take this abortion piece Mm. to help people to remember, oh, where we have precedent in this nation Mm -hmm for doing exactly that, mm-hmm. fugitive, slave. Mm-hmm. It's a timely, it's a very provocative comment, Dr. J. Um, and what I, one of my responses to it, um, my kids, my son and daughter-in-law live in Texas now. And uh, my daughter-in-law is carrying my grandchild to be born in February. And I had to tell her, I mean, this was like the first time in my life I had to tell my kids, you know, from here, from, you know, Bellevue, Washington, you know, raised on the East side, like being in this very, you know, blue state uh, in very white areas. Um, And now they're in a um, I like that they're in Houston, so I'm very happy that they're around Black people and some culture and things that they don't get to see here necessarily. But I had to tell my daughter-in-law, you know, I asked her, you know, are you planning on having the baby there or here? And then I had to explain to her, you know, because they don't follow the politics the way us older women are. And I had to explain to her, if you have the baby there and something happens to you on the table when you're giving birth, you don't even have a right to choose whether you can abort the baby or not. Like, I don't even want to have that discussion, but I have to have that discussion. And if you come here to have it and you've established residency in Texas already, you are you are you can also be prosecuted for leaving the state to have the baby here. Now, these are things in our lifetime to kind of to your point, Dr. J, that I never thought we'd have to have. Who would even have to sit down and worry about these sorts of things? And my daughter-in-law is very brown, right? And so will she get the help that she needs if she needs it? Like I've just been praying for, I don't want to think the worst. Um, But as a mom, you think about these sorts of issues around, you know, these states now 
that are they are slave states. Ron DeSantis, what he's doing in Florida, like I mean, it's it's here. We it's here. <laughs> it's here. Absolutely. Um and I think for whatever reason, um, we have folks that still believe that it's not right. And so I think about, and it's, it's subsequently died down, but all of the hoopla, right. About the handmaid's tale. Right. And so we're living in the handmaid's tale We're we are living in the handmaid's tale and the Handmaid's Tale is this dystopian novel, um, particularly about um, white women who are forced into enslavement around a fertility crisis, mm-hmm. right? And though this book borrows very deeply from the actual enslavement of Black women um, the involuntary um, hysterectomies and tubal ligations of Black, Indigenous, and Latine women, right? And so uh, the author goes as far as to refer to Canada's, I think, The Female Road, right? Which is a play on the Underground Railroad, mm. right? And so this idea that these things, um, are sci-fi, dystopia, fiction, um, it's here. And mm-hmm. the way I think that, uh, women and white women in particular specifically, um, are responding to this, you know, there are definitely a lot of white women up in arms and the vast majority kind of not so much like I don't like this this is awful um but not really like take to the streets and it puts me in the mind of the adage about the frog being in the pot and how you can't just drop the the frog in the boiling pot um you gotta you know slowly turn up the heat till Mm -hmm. the next thing they know they're boiling Mm-hmm. Right. It it creeps up on them sort of over time. Mm-hmm. And that is what I see happening. And my fear is that it's going to be once again, one of these conversations like, listen to black women, believe black women. But it's too late for all of us. Right. This, yes. This comment is echoing that that. Um, you know, I hope our allies don't think we're going to do as we've always done, lead the battle, fight the battle, win the battle, negotiate the rewards, and then sit back at the as the allies collect all the awards. That's that's exactly the point you're making, Stephanie, right? Like we, um, you know, this time in history. So let me ask this question. This time in history, what's our role going to be? Because history is here now. And... Mm-hmm. I keep using the, I mean, we are about 400 days away from another, potentially a whole nother world. And it is black women that I can see now, you know, on my feeds, I don't see white women activists at all. Do you see anybody (laughs) like 
worrying about the kind of things that we're worrying about. I mean, a few, I mean, there's a few people in my inner circle that do, but how, for the most part, I don't see advocacy. Mm, There's maybe two or three on LinkedIn. I follow Denise Conroy is one that appears to be very active and addressing issues. Ellie Gallagher is one Karen Fleshman that we all know is one, but by for the most part, do we even see them stepping in to help fight to help deal with anything? I'd like to pass on that question. I want to go and answer your question this way. Okay. Talking about the time in which we live. Why not to go back to something that Dr. Coverson said about the Karen and the dog in the park with the black man and the white man just says, just give her the dog. You see during chattel slavery in the U S White women were stereotyped as damsels in distress. Black women were stereotyped as Jezebel's lewd, promiscuous, to make it easy for the white women to understand that those mulatto babies that were being birthed were sired by their husbands. So a black woman could be laid out in the street, screaming, yelling in distress. People will step all over her. White woman has a tear and she is in distress, damsel in distress. We're in a time now where, yes, we absolutely need 21st century abolitionists. I suspect that there are some out there. There were many in that crowd in that tennis match. Mm-hmm. However, I'm really reminded when thinking about what is it that we're going to do. And I'm reminded of this queen by the name of Esther, who was Persian and, and or Jewish, married, living in Persia. And her people, the Jewish people, were about to be destroyed. And she was in a position of power to go in and and speak to the king to to stop this. But to do so, and the king did not beckon her to come, then she risked death herself. Her cousin said to her, you know what, you got to do something for the people. Because rest assured, deliverance is going to come to the people. But don't think that you're going to come out of this unscathed. And I feel as though Black women, so that's Queen Esther, I believe that woman king is our picture. It's time to be the Nineskas because in woman king, this African country that was involved in that slave trade of its people, she was leading a group of warriors who decided, she's like, I am not going to allow our people to sell our people into this chattel slavery system and went to tear down that slave port um, block if she had to do it herself. And when she set out, Viola Davis played the Nesca in in Woman King, when she set out to be about not being complicit in selling black people into the chattel slavery system for money, others followed her. And I believe here in Rochester, New York, where I see Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony Memorial Bridge, uh, that there are those 21st century abolitionists who, once we stand up, as Coco did in that tennis match, will say, oh, yes, they're absolutely right. And, and, and Doc, uh, my prayer is that by the time people listen to Black women, that it won't be too late. However, perhaps that might be what it will take to 
to re- to help everyone to understand that no, your narratives about us are not our narratives about us. We are human. We have value. We belong here and don't need anyone really to validate ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think the other aspect of this, um, something that I've been sitting quite a bit with is I see a continuum of uh, folks on the openness to change spectrum. So there are the folks that are already there, burn it down, rebuild, you know, remove these barriers of oppression. There are people on the other end that are like, I like it here. Like, I like the status quo. I'm not interested in changing and I'm going to actively fight against you to change it. And then there are the people in the middle that are awakening um, and are starting to acknowledge what they are seeing and hearing are contrary, right, to this idea of liberty and justice for all that we had sort of all been taught all our lives in the American school system. And I am interested in creating coalitions with people who share common values. And so I think um, that's where it's at. And so do we have to change everybody's hearts and minds? No, but we need to change enough hearts and minds and uh, coalesce um, and create coalitions around values, um, anti-racism values um, that, you know, that we are really having equality for all, like equal access and equality for all. Because as of right now, uh, you know, you will hear people talk about equality of opportunity, right, as a way to um, muddy the waters that even though the United States and our, our tenants and our constitution and case law and all of this other stuff, is about equity, but we are, or excuse me, equality, but you can look around and see glaring inequality. Um, And as we continue to move forward in time, you know, that, that chasm between the haves and the have nots are, is continues to grow. So who is in, Right. With these shared values um, to actually fight this. And it's not going to take 100 percent or even 99 percent of everyone involved. Um, So that's what I am wrestling with right now. Dr. J, do you have something you wanted to add? No. I was just, Dr. Coverson, as you were saying that, I was just, what was going on inside of me was how I started the show where I referenced the article in the Seattle Times today, because the disparity is so significant. We've talked about it on the show a lot over the years. You, you, we've all referenced, Dr. Coverson, you have shared 
the the lean in studies, the McKinsey studies, the Citigroup study that shows Citigroup did the study three ish years ago about the trillions of dollars being lost in American business because of racism. And we read I read this article today and I know there is no way we can fix it because the allies that you're referencing are not there. They're, the divide, the, the depth of it is so significant that there's no one championing for this. I shouldn't say it that way. I'm, I'm sure there are people trying, but it's growing and growing and growing. It's not, the progress is not happening. And when earning power, I mean, this has been my pet peeve my entire career, when earning power is impacted, the ripple effect of all of this flows downhill and hits the bottom. And at the bottom are black women. And we're the ones expected to put the, you know, swords in our hands and go fighting. And I'm looking at it like, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know that it's fixable. I mean, and I don't know that we have enough support to change it because to change these companies means you got to stop spending money with them. First off, who's going to withhold cash from, I don't know who Microsoft or who's going to stop spending money with them in order to right wrongs. This is, this to me feels like the, the crossroads we are at today. And I don't know that we have a lot of luxury <laughs> of time to bring on more allies or to hope and pray that more people wake up. I think ally and I, and I, I hear your sense of urgency. Um, and I share that sense of urgency. And I am also thinking about how allyship can be smaller actions. So <clears throat> the people in the tech industry that are making all of that money, the white and Asian men, share your salary. Tell people what it is that you are making. Right. Tell it. The reason, um, you know, Microsoft and Amazon and Google and all of these other places are not public entities. So there's no such thing as a crystal report where you can go and see what your colleagues are making. Um, even though, you know, there we're now I'm now seeing job descriptions that are skirting the new pay parity law where they put the whole salary band in and are not you know, telling people about sort of what the salary, the starting salary range is. Um, and then there's still a mystery once you get into the organization, how you get more money, how you get those raises. Not for much right? longer, Dr. Coverson, not for much longer. We we'll must, we're going to spill some tea here soon. Yeah, yeah. We, we should we, mention we that before the show ends about should. work that we're doing. We should. It, it, but it's about people like take the mystery out of it. Right. You do not have to be the the chief financial officer or the vice president of finance and and share a whole, you know, in order to sort of share what the pay is. Share your pay. Normalize having a conversation, for example, about pay. If you work in recruitment and you see or hear that somebody is 
undervaluing themselves disrupt the call. Like there, I, there was something in um, a, a recruiter posted in social media about how there was a candidate, um, in fact, a young black woman candidate who under uh, undercut herself in the negotiation process. And the recruiter accidentally terminated the interview, like the Zoom interview ended the meeting for everybody, called her, told her, this is what you need to be asking for. And then everybody got back on the Zoom call. So there are little steps that we can all be taking, particularly those people who have the power, the privilege and the social the social capital, the people that are benefiting from the status quo. There are little things that we can all be doing. Do them. Right. You don't have to be the president of the United States or your local elected official or a CEO to affect change. Mm. Right. This emergent theory of, you know, change happens with small uh, interpersonal interactions replicated over time. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me of earlier. We're talking basically if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. That's what you're, you're talking about reminds me of like the crowd. If you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, we we will before the show ends. Uh, we will talk uh, briefly about some of the work that Dr. Coverson and I are both going to do to equip people because pay is a significant issue. And you'll hear when I do my little spiel, it's much more than salary levels. Uh, And I'm talking about from corporate America's perspective, where the money is made is not in the salary level. And so those are the kind of things we are going to work to try to help uh, to try to help people to learn from us on. Uh, in terms of curriculum, I do, those are, these are steps. However, um, as a woman who has often been called a gangster in a suit or somebody who just wants to blow it all up, I, you know, the, the, the men are never, I mean, I don't have confidence. They're not going to give away their tea and let other people know, Um, how much money they're making and um, how their equity works, how their stock and restricted stock works, how their additional SERP special employee retirement uh, pension uh, contributions that come in and put money disproportionately into them. These are the kind of things we're going to have to start demanding. In fact, we should start talking about here really soon. uh, Once we launch our work, we should start talking about some immediate next steps that we believe women need to start to take uh, to demand uh, transparency and to demand action from these companies. You know, I was in another conversation yesterday. It had to do with healthcare. It has to do, you both know I'm dealing with my own health stuff right now and navigating it has been (laughs) unbelievable to somebody who pays top dollar for an individual plan every month, but you can't infiltrate this. This system is so gross. And somebody said to me yesterday, well, you know, this is just um, the administration. And I said, no, this is, um, yes, the administration is being bought by interest groups, but these are pharmaceutical companies who are posting 
you know, record profits on the backs of it's black women that are suffering, right? Our access to healthcare, our access to get believed when we say we're in pain, our access to medicine. Um, so pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, a whole nother layer of an experience that I've been having the last couple of months trying to navigate an insurance company who doesn't want to pay for any of the things that I need to have done. And so much so that I've had to go cash pay for some things recently because I can't get, I can't navigate. Like it's, there's so much bureaucracy. This is so tragic to black women's lives. And these are the kind of things I think we should just start, you know, you know, (laughs) I mean, I've invited the CEO from Premier. I've invited him on to the show, his gatekeeper communications people, wouldn't allow them to come talk. They wanted to come use the show as a PR stunt. And I absolutely refused to do that and said, no, we want him to talk to the black community. Won't do it. Right. They don't want us to prosper. And so I'm just going kind of a step beyond Dr. Coverson. You had talked a little bit a few minutes ago about a coalition. Like I, I believe it's much more valiant action that we need to start to embark on now to start to force the hands of these organizations. I said it on TikTok about Ross Brewer, right? Like, stop, you know, I, I know there are all these drug companies are run by, you know, the collective of cousins, but we've got to start holding our money back from, you know, places. We've got to start, we've got to force accountability. Look, I'm I'm about to ask some questions here really soon here in the state of Washington, because when I read the Seattle Times today and I'm like, okay, Here's all of this disparity. I want to know, uh, Governor Inslee, I want to know what we're going to do to deal with the equitable aspect to this for black people and black women in the state of Washington. What are we going to do about this? It's just growing and growing and growing. So political the, the <coughs> policy, you know, where's what are we doing? Like, I'm, I'm hopeful that I can get some answers here soon or at least get some response to these kind of questions. And I don't see what you're saying is mutually exclusive, right? So you can have allies and accomplices that also want that information and are also willing to kick down doors and get us into spaces to ask those questions directly or be sort of the secret Trojan horse person <laughs> fight on um, <laughs> that goes in and they're not expecting that question, say, for example, from a white cisgender man to be asking about the disparate health outcomes for black women, you know, as an example. And so I think that it is a multi-tiered strategy, Mm -hmm. right? That um, I'm not saying, for example, that, uh, you know, there is not a place for uh, white and white identifying folks or other folks who have privileged identities. It is a them not being overrepresented, right, in this this process, and b the folks who are experiencing these disparities are the best equipped to teach everyone else about 
how to remove these barriers and remediate the past harm. I want to go back to the pay equity piece Mm -hmm. momentarily. In the last, um, one of the last articles for Equal Pay Day as it relates to black women, they said over like a 40 year period of time, a 40 year career, because of this pay gap, we're losing out um, almost a million dollars. It was like $904,000 that we are losing um, in our retirement and through mm-hmm. compounded interest and all those things mm-hmm. um, over 40 years. And it is a multi-tiered problem, a multi-layered problem that is going to require a multi-layered solution, which is going to take all of us. You know, I can pound on the outside of the glass, you know, as somebody who had a pay raise taken from her on equal pay day for black women, right? (laughs) I can only advocate for myself so much, Mm -hmm. right? But if there's a board member, if there is legal counsel, if there is a peer who is also, you know, in the C-suite that has access to power and privilege and influence, step up, step in, risk your social capital, Right. Because it is going to be these small individual steps um, because these systems do not exist by themselves. Right. So the Sears Tower, I know it's not called the Sears Tower, but the Sears Tower is not discriminating against all of the black and brown people in that building. Like organizations are made up of people. And so if we are expecting change and demanding change, it has to be a collaborative effort. And since you just went there, and it really comes down to our values. A dad's house is like a bit a museum. Today I ruled up on all of the newspaper articles, all of the ebonies, all of the jets over the decades that chronicle this journey of black people in America even found an article where he was interviewed as they were talking about Negroes making Mm -hmm. progress in corporate America. I kept that one. (laughs) And, you know, either we talked about values earlier, either we really do believe in liberty, uh, liberty and justice for all, equity and justice for all, or we don't. Either we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all, or we don't. And it is time for everyone to decide what are our non-negotiable values and step into that. Mm-hmm. Do what we can do because it really, it really takes a made-up mind. That's what got us here, and that's what's going to get us out of here. When uh, 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 President Johnson went to Japan uh, in, in the 1960s to, to do some work, they threw the front page of the Birmingham newspaper on the on the, on the table and said, if this is how you treat your people, how are you going to treat us? Meyer, mm-hmm. he was at a Rotary National meeting at the time as well and wanted to do some business. And they said the same to him. He goes back to Birmingham and suddenly he says, I am a racist, but I'm not stupid. You can Google Sid Meyer. He says, I'm a racist, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not stupid. So he went back to try to figure out how to uh, get the black people 
involved in their Birmingham project. But what was fascinating about that time and throughout history was when the attention was front and center, the attention on the disparities of the plight of black, black and brown people in general, black women in particular, is there. And I, I really believe that this is an opportunity and that there are a silent majority really moving so that we not go toward a fascist government, but mm. really, really make a democracy a, a democracy. Mm-hmm. This fight for voting is critical. But even all that, until we really see each one, particularly black women, all as human, part of a, a family of humanity, a family, a community of humanity, so to speak, until we see that, believe that, act that way, we'll be having these courageous conversations. And I believe that we are closer than we think. And as long as we continue to take care of ourselves, uh, because why would we want to show up when we're empty? Now, let's just go ahead and take our time to get well, get healed, and, and turn the wounds that we encounter on the daily into wisdom uh, on the daily. Courageous together. Courageous together. Dr. Coverson, um, I want to try to do a 60 second uh, notification to the audience about some of the work that you and I are working on. I have a couple of announcements I want to make uh, to our audience before I close the show out. So quickly do it. I'll do you want me to turn it over to you and just high level kind of what we're working on. Or do you want me to talk to it or? Go ahead, talk to it. I'll chime in. All right. So Dr. Coverson and I are both former chief people officers, and we've decided to take our acumen that we have um, and build curriculum that we intend on selling. So it's part of our, our businesses and our brands. Uh, mine is going to be focused on corporate compensation. So I'm going to be teaching um, through this curriculum about where the money's at in these organizations. Now, my my lean is I'm at a corporate, so it doesn't necessarily translate to nonprofit and government, but there'll be some things in there that I believe will be valuable for all women. So we're targeting a launch date of October 1st. And then Dr. Coverson, your part is? I am going to be talking with folks around the performance management process. So uh, think about, for example, how you hear on the regular HR is not your friend. Well, what if you had a friend who was in HR? And so that'll be me. And so we're going to talk you through that process so that you have a clear understanding of how it works and what those strategies are so uh, that you can get uh, uh, your performance accolades, which then translates into the compensation piece, higher compensation. Mm-hmm. They are, they're woven together. And so we're going to be doing that through our businesses to, uh, to help equip uh, people with that. Uh, I want to make a couple of announcements. I want to, uh, first off, let me thank uh, Dr. J and Dr. C. <laughs> Dr. J and Dr. C for being on here. Dr. J, I know it's late. 
back in New York or so it's uh, so thank you for being on at the late hour and I love the shirt. So thank you for doing that for Heartbeat. Uh, just a couple things uh, tomorrow, excuse me, um, next week on Heartbeat, we will have uh, Shalee Seacrest. She's the newly elected a regional vice president of the Alaska, Oregon, Washington, NAACP, and uh, and her uh, team of people that she wants to bring on with her. So we're going to get to hear uh, from her what her view, what's going on, what's, what's her plan, that whole thing. So we're really grateful that a newly elected yeah. uh, civil rights uh, leader is going to come on with us next week. Uh, I also want to let the audience know that on Saturday, if you watched the show two or three weeks ago, we had on the Iranian women who were fighting for women's rights. And this Saturday is the one year anniversary uh, of the death of Masa Amini. She is an icon uh, in the uh Iranian community of a woman who took off her hijab and refused to let these dictators. So this is a women's rights thing. There's a, a get together uh, at one o'clock uh, downtown Bellevue. I will actually be speaking at that event. Uh, so I'm going to speak to women's rights and what we collectively need to do uh, together as women. So I'm happy about that. There's a lot of mojo uh, going on here. I had a quote uh, that I wanted to share before I sign off. Do either of you want a couple of words before I close out this evening? Thanks for having the courage. Thank you. Looking forward to courageous together. We got to do this. I saw this quote today and I was like, it gave me chills. And it says, it only takes one voice at the right pitch to start an avalanche. And so courageous together, we fight forward. So thank you all for joining uh, this evening with us. We look forward to uh, seeing you all next Wednesday, same time, same place. Have a good evening. We'll see you next week. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.